0: Hello and welcome to London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Wednesday, February 20th, 2019. Mike's off this week. He will be back in this chair on Monday. You can hear him tomorrow night when the London Knights take on the Peterborough Peets. In the meantime, it's you and I. And we've got another busy show for you today. We will talk about street parties in London and what officials in the city are doing to address them. We'll do that for the first uh, uh, a couple segments of the show. We'll also get reaction from London Police Chief John Perry about planned changes to the Police Services Act. We'll talk to Anthony Wilson-Smith from Historic Canada next hour. We'll be talking about a new poll that paints an ugly picture about how well Canadians know our history. It's not well. Uh, there are apparently lots of Canadians who did not know we were involved in D-Day. D-Day. We will talk to Deb Harvey from the Grand Theater about planned renovations to the Grand Theater. We'll also talk about some interesting new research that has been done to help you exercise and a whole lot more. Up first, street parties. I can't tell you what Mike Stubbs is doing right now, but I can tell you with 100% certainty what he isn't doing. Mike isn't proofing. Broofing, of course, is when you drink a beer on the roof. Many people in London learned this thanks to the parties that have grown wilder and wilder every year at Western during fake homecoming, otherwise known as FOCO. Last year's FOCO was the largest and most dangerous yet. 20,000 people were estimated to attend. It went from 7.30 in the morning. Some people even started the night before, went into that afternoon and evening. It took several days to clean up afterwards. 57 people were taken to hospital. 28 people went to hospital between 1 and 4 p.m. that afternoon alone. Hospitals reported uh, getting patients the day before and even multiple days after All related to FOCO, London Police issued 134 Provincial Offense Notices, London Fire issued 30 Fire Code Violations, City Bylaw Officers issued 6 Noise Violations, the London Police had to call in York Regional Police for backup for this. The entire event cost first responders, and ultimately ultimately you and I, over $200,000. Last week, officials from Western University met with eight other universities to talk about these street parties because it's not just a London problem, it's a everyone problem. There were people from the city of London, from London police there as well, and with respective cities, people from Kingston and and what and so on. The meeting did not bring any answers, but it did bring everyone together, and that's something different than what we've seen in the past. It's not just London dealing with this, it's London, Ottawa, Guelph, King Kingston and so on and so on. So where do we go from here? The plan to uh, try and find some answers will be outlined by the Community uh, Protective Services Committee today. To talk about this, we are joined by Oris Katolik. He's the Chief Municipal Law Enforcement Officer for the City of London. Thanks for your time today. Yes, thank you. Well, when it comes to unsanctioned uh, parties, these street parties, I don't even know where you start in terms of trying to find a solution to this because... It's not just a London problem, and everyone's having trouble finding ways to put a lid on them.
1: Yes, absolutely, Devin. This isn't specific to any one community. Uh, We're seeing this uh, across municipalities uh, in North America, uh, definitely uh, across municipalities um, in Ontario that have colleges uh, and universities within them. And last Friday, we attended um, a summit in Waterloo, where there were municipalities uh, across Ontario in attendance, uh, including universities, colleges, and uh, local police services. And really, the conclusion was that there really isn't one silver bullet solution to this. Uh, uh, The solution is gonna take uh, time, and uh, a lot of uh, agencies, uh, communities, universities, uh, students, school boards uh, need to get involved uh, to look for a common solution, there really isn't one silver bullet that's going to solve this overnight.
0: Is one of the difficulties like if this was on you know Western property, then you know Western would be you know in a better position to to deal with some of this stuff. But it's on uh, you know it's on it's on Bruffdale public private pu- pu- public property, private property. You've got the university involved, police fire, uh, the city. And so there's there's different elements. So it's not as though just like, you know, one agency say, you know, can just say, okay, well, we've got this because it kind of bleeds into all of them.
1: Yeah, that, that certainly is uh, the main issue that it's on a, a public street, um, on a street that's uh, a, a cul-de-sac. It's got uh, really only two vehicular um, entry points, but it has uh, numerous points for pedestrians. To, uh, to come in because of the laneways and because of the access to, uh, to the university. And what we heard last Friday was, uh, you know, different cities are looking at different issues. We talked about uh, addiction experts uh, on site to triage the students prior to uh, EMS taking them to uh, Emerge because what the Emerge rooms uh, seem to be are, are drunk tanks. Uh, because uh, you know most of the issues are are alcohol or uh, drug involved. Uh, one another issue we talked about is uh, aligning homecomings across uh, Ontario. Because what we're finding is that there's buses coming into London um, as far as uh, New York State, and also to Waterloo with their uh, St. Paddy's Day. And if all the the homecomings were aligned. Uh, Perhaps students wouldn't travel between universities. It's almost become a bit of a rite of passage, a bucket list thing, to go to as many homecomings or uh, fake homecomings, if you want to call them that, uh, across Ontario and uh, check them off your list.
0: Yeah, I've heard that I think there is a list of, uh, well, you go to London this week, you go to Kingston that week, you go to Ottawa this week, and on and on and on. Um, so I've heard from officials uh, that those types of lists uh, uh, may may actually exist from a, a municipal standpoint. I know obviously this is going to be discussed today is like in terms of um, uh, committees and policy committees, like what types of things can the city look at doing to try and put a lid on this to whatever degree the city uh, city can here?
1: So we we have, uh, Devin, a public nuisance bylaw that we uh, put in place uh, just after the uh, uh, St. Patrick's Day Fleming event in 2012. Uh, We actually had the bylaw drafted in uh, 2007 because we visited uh, East Lansing, Michigan, uh, together with uh, London police to see how they deal with uh, uh, their football games. We have 75,000 people going to a football game you know, they're all going in pretty happy, but they come out uh, happy if Michigan wins. And if the Michigan doesn't win, uh, you know, issues have occurred in uh, East Lansing. So we studied that, uh, but Council of the Day felt that it was uh, a little bit too much of a, a power to the municipality to have bylaw and police go in and, and break up parties because before they become... Uh, uh unauthorized gatherings or, or riots. But now we do have that in place. Uh, there have been dozens of charges laid against mainly tenants who are hosting these parties. Uh, charges uh, can and have been laid uh to those that have created uh, these events on Facebook. And what we're looking at doing is some form of cost recovery because we do know that uh, this is expensive for the taxpayer, for police service, uh, EMS, uh, various city departments dealing with this.
0: Is there anything that could be learned from Fanshawe and the Fleming Drive uh, riot, which kind of led to, as you mentioned, the nuisance bylaw? We haven't seen too many issues around Fanshawe for quite a while. It's been more Western and the homecoming and now this, this fake homecoming stuff.
1: Yeah, what what happened in Fanshawe in 2012 was uh, just prior to the nuisance bylaw. So uh, there have been some big house parties uh, in in that neighborhood since, and uh, the nuisance bylaw has been uh, enacted. Uh, the bylaw is citywide, so it's it's enacted uh, you know for any real house party that can get out of hand. But the the issue with uh, Rothdale is that there's just so many people on a very small street that the sheer volume of people at that location uh, creates a a hazard, a public safety hazard. And uh, I I don't think I'd be over-exaggerating in saying that because of the uh, drunken shenanigans of people diving off roofs and just the sheer volume of people that if this continues, uh, somebody will be tragically hurt or if not killed.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm almost surprised it hasn't happened, and it's a sad thing to say. Just because uh, when you have like twenty thousand people there, and based on some of these numbers from uh, other communities, you know Kingston, you know maybe twenty five thousand people. Other communities have had possibly even more than London's had. It's uh, in a tight space. It's very dangerous. Out of curiosity, for Bylaw officers, when you lay, uh, you know. Tickets for this stuff, do you do it during or after because if I were a bylaw officer i wouldn 't want to be wading into twenty thousand people who are drunk and uh, rambunctious and and who knows what they 're doing
1: so we, we we do both we have the option of doing both um, a lot of it is just you know collecting the evidence, but uh, under an Ontario law, we have up to six months to lay uh, summons for um, the violation.
0: Because yeah, I mean, I for the officers themselves. I mean, they've had for I know with emergency vehicles, they've had trouble getting if pe- when people have been hurt, they can't get the ambulance in because there's just too many people. It's just such a combustible and dangerous situation.
1: Yeah, what what generally occurs is that you know there's a focus on um, you know enforcement uh, early on and kind of containing the crowd. But after the crowd gets uh, so large, uh, it, the, the shift is to public safety to ensure that. Nobody gets hurt, and the people that are hurt uh, because of uh, various uh, occurrences, that we get EMS to them. And uh, over the last couple years, uh, it's all been by by hand. So EMS goes in with stretchers uh, and carries the people out. And anybody that uh, witnesses uh, people diving off roofs and get get hurt, like that image doesn't really leave. Uh, too quickly. It's, uh, you have to ask yourself, uh, why are people doing this? Why are they taking this risky behavior of diving off roofs to trying to break a table? And I think it's because uh, everybody's watching and leading them on. And if you're not watching, if you're not there, well, in five minutes, uh, you'll see it on social media
0: uh finally uh, i don't want to put the cart before the horse because this process is is kind of starting in terms of everyone coming together and looking to see what can be done what possible changes could be made but uh, assuming you know we're a little bit future in the in the future it's in the spring or summer and there are recommendations that you know various entities can do how much flexibility does the municipality have to possibly enact changes, assuming they're approved by council in time for this September, when this is going to come around again.
1: Well, if if we amend the public nuisance bylaw, we'll be going back to council uh, in April, uh, and uh, you know, obviously, we're in discussions with uh, Western administration and the student union. Uh, Western is looking at their code of conduct, and the student union is looking at uh, alternative events on campus. So everybody involved in this is doing something. We're also going to focus on an enhanced communications plan uh, to advise the public, Uh, and there'll be a strong focus on working with the local school boards because what we're finding is uh, this is becoming uh, an event for high school students also. Mm.
0: Orist, uh, we will follow this with interest. I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much.
1: Okay, thank you, Devin. Have a great day.
0: That's Oris Katolik from the City of London. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program, everyone. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. I just want to follow up a little bit on that interview with Oris Katolik and just talk about street parties in London because it is a problem without an easy answer. And I don't know what the solution is. I've said it. Different times, and I've just been talking about this with people in general, and people always kind of think I'm joking when I see it, and I'm not. I'm. It's a serious idea. I don't know if it would be successful. I'm not seriously suggesting it, but I do wonder if it would have any sort of impact. I mean, here it is. So I look at these street parties, and one of the things I think of is social media, and for the longest time. Before we really kind of learned what, you know, was, or we became wise to what Facebook was. Facebook was cool for kids. Uh, it was a place where they could uh, talk without their parents being around. And then Facebook exploded, and everyone and their uncle is on Facebook. And so now you have, uh, you know, high school kids, you got uh, kids in university who are now getting updates and statuses and pictures from their parents and grandparents and aunts, uncles and everything. And that's that's not a bad thing. (laughs) I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But for some of the cool factor, it it wore off. And so now you got kids on Snapchat and whatever the heck else is out there. I've, I've downloaded Snapchat, and I don't like not understanding things, but for the life of me, I just don't get Snapchat. Regardless. So I wonder if we were to say, okay, we have this problem with Foco—twenty 20,000 people coming out partying, people apparently coming from as far away as New York state to party on Bruffdale." What can we do? One wacky idea is how I'll describe it is, okay, let's, let's lean into it. If you can't beat them, Join them. Let's make fake ho- fake homecoming. Let's make Foco a thing. Let's, uh, you know, block off a bunch of streets in the area. Let's, uh, you know, bring clowns. Let's make this family friendly. It's, let's let's have some rides maybe. Let's have a street festival. We can have some mimes. We could uh, think of all the things that would, no offense to mimes, that would make this as lame as possible. And then maybe you have all these, uh, you know, university kids and people who are on the party university circuit who say, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to go broofing on Bruffdale and have, you know, clowns walking by and mimes, you know, stuck in random boxes and all sorts of weirdo things. I don't want to go to that and they go somewhere else. Now the argument can say, well, they just go somewhere else in London, but I don't know if it's that easy. Now, I'm not saying that's a uh, particularly uh, great idea, but it was just something I came up with. We'll just lean into it. If you can't beat them, join them, and either try and just make it a a fun time or make it so uncool, no one will want to go to it, except for all your aunts and uncles and grandparents and parents. Or, hey, how about this? Forget all that. Invite all the parents of the kids to London for the weekend. No one's going to want to jump off roofs uh, with their parents around. Or maybe they will, (laughs) which is a a bigger problem. At the end of the day, I don't know what the the solution to this is. It may be something as simple as financial penalties. We were talking on uh, the show yesterday about red light cameras and the financial incentive to change your habits can be a strong one. And so if we were to find the, uh, the homeowners who are renting out these houses and these rooms to kids that are throwing these parties, that are clogging the streets so that emergency vehicles cannot get up and down them, where people are getting injured on them, where it is not hyperbole to say someone could die. Okay, well now you're going you know, to get a fine of $50,000. You're going to get a fine of $100,000. Maybe then those landlords would treat the situation differently. Is there an individual fine we can give to the students? What as another option, if we just did nothing, paid no attention, you can't because if people are getting injured, it's, you just can't ignore it. But I would just wonder like if we just paid them no mind whatsoever, we didn't pay any attention. Does that change anything? Because at the end of the day, it is a dangerous situation. I wouldn't want to be a bylaw officer and having to uh, wade into that crowd. I wouldn't want to be a police officer and be in that sort of a situation. I wouldn't want to be a fire prevention officer and looking at fire code uh, violations. I wouldn't want to be one of the students there. It's just so dangerous. Jumping off roofs with... Dozens and dozens and dozens of people getting injured. There's got to be a solution there somewhere. What the exact solution is, I do not know. I know Kingston uh, last year was trying something where they were trying to lay, you know, uh, more of charges that require a court visit. As if that might change people's minds. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. The solutions out there. But it's not an easy one because this is not just the London problem. This is a problem impacting a lot of different communities. And if the answer was there, we'd have it by now. But we don't. We need to stop for news and take a break. When we come back, we'll have more of a London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program, everyone. Uh, Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on London Live. Uh, the news came down yesterday that the Progressive Conservatives were introducing new legislation they say it will streamline the Special Investigations Unit investigation process and enhance police oversight through an overhaul to the Police Services Act. Uh, the Doug Ford government said in a release that its comprehensive Ontario Police Service Act 2019 would replace the previous government's Bill 175, which they said treated police with suspicion and created job difficulty. Community Safety Minister Sylvia Jones and Attorney General Caroline Mulrooney discussed the changes during a press conference in Oakville yesterday. If passed, the PC government said the new act would create a window for public complaints which would reduce delays in the investigation process. The release also stated that the act will enable more accountability and ensure the police, government, and the Ontario people can create a more secure province. It looks as though with these uh, new changes that uh, street checks will not be coming back, uh, but there will be some uh, pretty significant changes uh, to the SIU. It is a big piece of legislation, and to break it down, we are joined by London Police Chief uh, John Perry. Thanks for your time today. No, Thanks, Devin. The, uh, the Provincial government announced they're making some changes to the Police Services Act uh, yesterday. Uh, it's still early. I'm just trying to get through the act myself to see what is changing here. It seems like there might be some substantial changes uh, at this point. Do you have uh, any? Uh, how much of the act have you been able to, or some of the changes being able to see? And, and what are your thoughts on some of these proposed changes?
2: Well, I think uh, if you look, uh, you know, there's been many stakeholders since 2011 that have been working with the government to address some of the shortcomings in the Police Services Act, which really hasn't uh, seen any essential changes since, uh, you know, well, I guess it's coming up to 30 years. And I think it was necessary to meet some of the changing uh, public safety needs uh, across Ontario. And the, the introduction of the legislation, I think uh, we all can appreciate and look forward to continuing to work with the government to address where areas that uh, some of the stakeholders uh, feel that still need some work, and also on developing the regulations. Uh, I haven't uh, got through it all. It's a fairly extensive uh, document, as you have uh, probably uh, found out yourself. Uh, a couple things that come to mind that uh, I think even the minister spoke about was uh, some of the, o- uh, the oversight. Uh, special investigations unit the public complaints uh, the community safety well-being plans including the chiefs uh, on that I thought was important and addressing some of the uh, the previous legislation that talked about outsourcing uh, certain uh, uh, things that uh, police uh, services do so uh, but uh, closer look and uh, over the next couple of weeks and uh, a better indication where we're at
0: the SIU part was interesting. Their, uh, the, the mandate in terms of investigating when um, you know there's serious injury or death, when there's injury to a police officer hasn't changed. Uh, do you feel that the SIU's mandate has almost grown a little bit uh, too much beyond where it was originally intended?
2: Yeah, I think uh, there's a lot of uh, people um, that looked at the SIU and the mandate, and I think you're, you're bang on with it was created. Its focus and mandate was to address criminal offences, uh, and over time, that has expanded. Uh, you look at the delay in some of the investigations, uh, and the efficiency of that. And it wasn't really doing uh, much good for anyone, including victims, the community, or, or police officers. And uh, you know, refocusing their mandate and uh, the parameters around
0: that, I think, uh, will uh, will improve some of those outcomes. One thing, you know, it's certainly not my expertise in any way is, uh, you know, the, the length of investigations uh, under this new uh, proposed changes, they would have, the SIU would have to wrap up their investigation with 120 days, which is quite a long time. Uh, that should be, I would imagine, enough time for most cases. Maybe there's some special cases where it's not, or, or is 120 days enough time for an investigation?
2: Well, uh, I mean, you you can look at it a couple different ways, and I think if you have, uh, you know, a complex investigation, uh, time uh, might be, uh, more time might be required. Uh, The reality is that uh, in many of these cases, uh, you know, you're not looking for uh, witnesses, you're not looking for uh, subjects uh, uh, that are already presented to to you, and uh, so I think the length of time was uh, needed to be addressed. Uh, The 120 days... Uh, There is also my understanding uh, that they can ask for extensions um, uh, following the 120 days if necessary. And and part of the other issue and I think needs to be addressed with SIU is, you know, once they invoked their mandate, there wasn't really a lot of information that was coming out uh, to the public uh, around where they were with their investigation, and it really left this cloud of suspicion hanging over uh, the circumstances that
0: uh, may have occurred. One of the uh, big uh, changes when the this was updated uh, by the Liberals, now updated again, was uh, uh, street checks was an issue. I saw yesterday uh, the uh, minist- uh, community safety and correctional services minister said the government will not be bringing back uh, street checks. I know uh, you addressed this at the police services board a little while ago in terms of what the police service has has moved on doing for you. Is that uh, do we need to go back to something we were doing before, or? Uh, with what the current practice is now, is is, is that the best way forward, in, in your mind, for, for London?
2: Well, Justice Tulloch just completed his review uh, of the, uh, that legislation that was introduced uh, by the previous government. Uh, he has made some recommendations, uh, and he's talked about uh, uh, where we are with the state of street checks or, or carting, and uh, I think that uh, we all need time to absorb uh, what he has found in that. Uh, In terms of our police service, uh, you know, business carries on, change happens, and we have to adapt and we move forward in a positive way. And I think uh, this police service has, uh, you know, accepted where the the legislation is, and we continue to to do our best to serve the community and ensure public safety.
0: For processes like this, is this something where... Uh, like the Ontario Chiefs of Police might provide, uh, you know, some uh, insight into what uh, they might want or another police association in the province, or what's that process like from the government to some of the varying uh, uh, police uh, associations we have in the province?
2: Well, if you go back to 2011, I know the Ontario Association of Chiefs of Police, I believe municipal uh, representation, the police associations, uh, the ministries themselves all were at the table and trying to uh, to address where the changes needed to be made, uh, and then you know that feedback uh, has continued uh, even into uh, with the current uh, provincial government uh, with their their changes, and uh, and I think you know as stakeholders, including the the community, uh, we all need to have a voice at the table so that we can uh, ensure that the legislation is uh, appropriate and effective.
0: Uh, any concerns about uh, privatization or police? Uh, services um, maybe not having as much control, or or just what what's happening in that area. It's it's somewhat unknown for the general public in terms of what what's kind of going on in that realm.
2: Yeah, the previous government with the legislation they proposed really opened the doors for privatization of policing, and and I can't say that I was in favor of uh, much what was there. Uh, you know, this government, uh, with their changes uh, to legislation, uh, strictly uh, or restricted some of the outsourcing, uh, so private entities can't get involved in law enforcement, uh, emergency response, or maintaining public peace. So, those activities that require the power of a police officer, and I think there's good reason for that. Uh, you know, when we talk about oversight and uh, opening the door to some of that privatization, uh, it... Uh, uh, I think you lose that oversight ability, and uh, you know, if uh, with our our model here in the city, uh, with the London Police Service, when we talk about you know even canine services, uh, yes, we have officers that are trained uh, to work with uh, their canine partner, but they also respond to other needs in the community, and, and taking away that uh, uh, that piece just adds uh, some other uh, issues that uh, needed to be addressed. So, I think limiting it, and limiting it, and restricting it was the right way to go.
0: Chief Perry, I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's London Police Chief John Perry. We need to pause me we come back. We'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program, everyone. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. On yesterday's show, we talked to Ward Seven Councilor Josh Morkin. He is the chair of the Corporate Services Committee. Uh, we talked about the funding request from the Grand Theater. They have an eight million dollar planned renovation that mm, they would like to get two million dollars from the city uh, to help with. They will then, if they are successful in that, try to tap into four million dollars from the federal government and try to cover the rest with private donations. The two million dollars from the city, though, is key. They need. The That to go and start the process for federal funding that is dependent on there being uh, local support for these types of projects. So they've asked for the money from the Tourism Infrastructure Fund. That comes from the hotel tax, which we've talked about before. The committee yesterday signed off on the $2 million. The money will come from the hotel tax. It'll come from maybe the Economic Development uh, Reserve Fund. It'll come from somewhere the exact location hasn't been determined yet. Uh, determined yet, but it will uh, be going through, assuming it's approved by full council next week. This did get unanimous approval by the committee, so for council to go against that would be a bit surprising, but anything could happen. Uh, Even with the committee signing off on it, the money uh, really isn't needed until uh, 2020 thereabouts. So City Hall will also work towards putting together a policy to deal with requests like this in the future as more and more community groups ask for funding from the Tourism Infrastructure Fund. Uh, That's something we talked about with uh, Josh Morgan yesterday. So that's the update from where we left this yesterday. To talk more about what's involved with these uh, renovations, we are joined by Deb Harvey, the Executive Director of the Grand Theatre. Thanks for your time today.
3: Yeah, you're welcome.
0: I've uh, I'm I'm interested in uh, the improvements uh, to the Grand Theater. When was the last time uh, renovations on this type of a, a scale were done, do you know?
3: Well, on this scale, it's been quite a while. We've done um four separate um projects beginning in 2008. We've done um bits and pieces of things. We have For instance, we have seven roofs on this building. We've replaced um, three of them. There are four to go. In 2010, we redid the main, uh, the street stage, the interior of that in 2010. So we've done, we continue to do projects as they come up and chip away at them on a very short um, window that we have to get the work done.
0: When I was reading about the story, the fact you have seven roofs was uh, something that jumped out to me. <laughs> I didn't know you had multiple roofs, but you uh, do. I know.
3: You'd have to come and do a tour, and I could show you those.
0: But. <laughs> uh, you didn't really get any uh, uh, pushback uh, yesterday during the request of the committee. Were you expecting any? It seemed as though they, there seemed to be pretty much universal agreement that um, the two million request you were asking is something that's uh, it's needed here.
3: I I think so, and we were really pleased, obviously, with the support um, in council chambers from the Corporate Services Committee. Um, We have been doing our homework and letting people know about the issues that are here at the Grand Theatre, so I don't think anybody was surprised and no one was blindsided by the request, and I think that um, helps to have people understand what the needs are, and I think that helped us.
0: Assuming this is ultimately approved by full council, what would this allow you to do in terms of securing funds? For the rest of your innovation, I know this is the first key to uh, approaching the the feds and everything else.
3: Yeah, and I I, I mean that... The the leverage of having your municipal government support you um, is a really strong signal of support. Um, The federal government, uh, that Cultural Spaces Application Program, it's what they look for. Is your city behind you? Also on our private donation side, um, people are looking to have their funds matched by uh, municipal government as well. So it really is the key puzzle piece to this um, whole campaign.
0: What would you like to upgrade at the theatre? We you mentioned the roofs, but there's more to it than that.
3: Oh, it's, yeah, there's, <laughs> a, there's a lot that we will do. And it really does impact, like, uh, it will impact next season in terms of sort of ending our season a bit early and starting the next one a bit later. So everything hinges on the decisions that get made fairly quickly, um, but there are many pieces to this puzzle. A lot of automation changes to, and upgrades to sound and lighting equipment that we need for the street stage and the McManus stage. Um, our wardrobe needs expansion. As a, Our box office needs to be renovated and, and to be able to get street access for the box office. Our lobby spaces haven't really been touched um, since 77, when, 78 when it was built. Um, so there's some modernization there and trying to open up some spaces. Um, the the dressing rooms downstairs, again, were, were created in seventy seven seventy eight, and there hasn't been much change down there. Um, so it really is throughout the building, so there'll be many overlapping projects. Um, we're already um, building the Gantt charts um, to make sure that everything can get done in the five-month window that we have. So
0: really the, the idea is like uh, it would be all be done in five months? Uh, Um,
3: Pretty much. Um, uh, If if some of the funding comes forward, we'll try to do a bit of um, specialized equipment install this summer to alleviate some of that, some of getting it done. But again, that's when we're dark. Um, That's when we don't have shows on the stage. So um, we will be doing that work primarily and the majority of it between May of um, 2020 and October 2020.
0: Would these uh, renovations allow uh, the Grand to do different types of productions, or is it just more geared towards upgrading what you have and kind of and, and yeah,
3: it, it's, up, it's upgrading for sure. Um, we're not really changing um, the, the spaces themselves, the street stage or the McManus stage, not really. The, the McManus will get probably the biggest um, sort of facelift, if you will, um, turning it a little bit more into a lab space and allowing it, for, it to be used for theater as well as some business meetings and so on. Um, so just to have it be a multi-purpose space.
0: Would you be able to do have a longer season after this, or is that, that that doesn't really change?
3: It doesn't really impact us. we're We're what's called a winter house, and it's we're really perfectly located among a lot of fantastic summer theater here, um, as well as um, Shaw, Stratford, um, Drayton, um, Port Stanley. There's lots of summer theater that happens, so I think it's really key that we stick to our lane and and do our winter house um, subscription series.
0: Uh, Still, this is, uh, I know you're mentioning hopefully maybe some this summer, but really a lot of this is more uh, still a a couple months away, assuming everything kind of goes according to plan?
3: Correct that's right um so if everything moves through our council then we will be in touch with um, the federal government our application is already in there we're already having discussions with them so uh, we'll we'll next uh, approach them and also our private donors to make sure that everybody is the funding is matched
0: we will uh, follow this with interest Deb I certainly appreciate your time today thank you very much
3: right and come on over I'll show you all those routes okay? I will
0: I will <laughs> thank you
3: <laughs> thanks Devin bye-bye
0: That's Deb Harvey, Executive Director of the Grand Theatre. We need to pause. When we come back, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. We just have enough time to set up the second hour of the program. Lots more to get to. We'll be talking about a poll that suggests Canadians do not know their history when it comes to World War II. This is not a good survey. This is not a good result for Canadians. I think you'll be interested in the results. But again, I'm going to brace you right now. Uh, The results were not good. There were some Canadians out there who did not know we were involved in D-Day, We will talk to uh, Jerry McCartney from the London Chamber of Commerce. We'll talk about uh, push-ups, new research on the benefits to push-ups you may not have been aware of. That and more coming up in the second hour of the program. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Mike Stubbs is off. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike. He will be back with you on Monday. How well do you know your history, specifically World War II? The answer for many Canadians, unfortunately, is not well. An Ipsos poll for Global News in partnership with Historica Canada found most Canadians failed when asked six multiple choice questions on D-Day, the date which Allied forces invaded northern France. Fewer than half, 48% of those polled, were able to answer three out of six questions correctly, and 19% weren't able to answer even one question correctly. 62% were able to correctly identify what D-Day was, while 68% of Canadians uh, knew that we were a participant, yet only 58% pegged Adolf Hitler and Germany as the country the Allies were fighting. So let's go back for that for just a moment here. Fewer than half were able to get these answers correct. But when it came to simply knowing what D Day was, 62% answered correctly. And when it came to knowing that Canada was involved, 68%. So you're looking at 32% of Canadians who did not know Canadians were involved in D Day. You were looking at 38% of Canadians who didn't even know what D Day was. You were looking at a majority of Canadians who did not know we were fighting Germany. What is going on? To talk about this, we are joined by Anthony Wilson Smith, the president of Historica Canada. Thanks for your time today. My pleasure. Well, I was interested and a little disappointed. Canadians weren't uh, able to do a little bit better on this test uh, what were what was your reaction to the results?
4: Yeah, I got to say that uh, in general, I'm very, you know, we're usually very pleased at the nature of what Canadian, or enthusiasm for knowing things, but on this, there's just not a lot of knowledge, and it's pretty basic stuff, some of it.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I can I can give people a little bit of leeway for stuff like, you know, how many total Canadian troops were landing yeah. on D-Day, that I, I get. Uh, but not knowing we were involved at all was a uh, like sixty eight people got it sixty eight percent got it right but still thirty two percent getting it wrong is a little uh not good
4: well thirty two percent didn't get it right. And also 58% of people didn't know who we were fighting. I mean, some people thought we were fighting France rather than landing there to free them. Some people actually even thought we were fighting England, for heaven's sake. And, you know, quite a few people had no idea that the U.S. or, uh, or Great Britain were involved, who were, of course, the two largest forces in terms of overall numbers.
0: It's weird because it doesn't jive with just my anecdotal kind of experiences, With uh, D-Day and the stories we hear from people, not in the media per se, but just in general, and we see around it, it seems odd that people uh, just don't know some of the most basic stuff.
4: No, and you know it runs against the you know the very positive reaction we get. We pull, we, you know we pull in advance, and you know we've talked about this before. we pull in advance before every remembrance day, and there's always high enthusiasm and great regard for respecting our veterans and our current serving troops, and seemed you know I had always presumed that included general awareness of, uh, of the battles they've been in, but uh, that's now called into question, so you know there's some work to do very clearly.
0: You've been at Historica uh, Canada for a while. There have been a number of these polls done by you and others. It's, the results vary, but generally they're positive. Is this something we should be concerned about, or how, do we, how should we view this?
4: I think there's a couple of factors here. You know, the first is, so, for a guy like me, and I'm on the north side of 50 in terms of age, you know, when I grew up in the, uh, you know, in the 70s and 80s, for example, veterans of World War II were still very much in the mainstream. You know, they were bank executives, the manager around the corner, maybe a neighbor. I actually remember a couple of hockey coaches of mine who were, you know, were veterans. Yeah, in other words, they were, you know, they were still at prime working years. Today, of course, you know, those veterans who survive are shrinking quickly in number and are well into their 90s, on average about 90. 95 or more and not as much part of the mainstream so pe- younger people aren't hearing about it and that's perhaps why their level is lower and the other thing is we're not teaching this stuff well or sometimes at all in schools you know we tend to be more focused on local provincial history because it's it, things are provincially taught and, and that's a problem in issues like this
0: I wonder you know we should be teaching in school and in every school I I, I also wonder how people learn or I guess maybe retain their history after they learn it and maybe they get out of school and there's some distance between them and the classroom. I I think a lot of people learn from pop culture and in that sense, we're very Americanized. So from that sense, you could almost see why we may not think we were involved in D-Day because it's American stories we see in the movies and TV. It's not Canadian stories.
4: Yeah, I know, and I was thinking on that, too, because, uh, you know, there's no question Saving Private Ryan, uh, by, about 20 years ago, is a, a great movie for teaching about it, but there's not a lot of non-U.S. But the thing is that even then, you know, people who saw that movie don't seem to realize it was about the same event we were in, so I'm not f- too fussed about not getting years or dates right. It's more an awareness of something, you know? To, know, to not know that we were part of the greatest single, you know, the largest single invasion in history, the beginning of the end of the biggest war of all time... It, you know, it's really something, because the other thing is, you know, the impact is still felt today. I mean, we live the life we do in the world that we do in very positive ways because of what these soldiers did on D-Day 75 years ago.
0: Who, who, who is it, you know, incumbent on to do a better job of uh, being more aware of this? I mean, obviously every Canadian should be uh, interested in this, but every Canadian doesn't appear to, uh, to have some of this knowledge.
4: Well, you know, I mean, I think individual provinces because they run education and territories have to say are we actually teaching all the major points in our country's history not just our provinces and have a look at that and that's always been an issue for us I think parents have to do it too and say you know let's make sure that we know what you know our grandparents or others or people down the block or other people did and also frankly for national organizations like ours we're out there pitching every day well we got to keep pitching harder and we do by the way have uh, you know we do our heritage minutes of course and we do have a heritage minute Uh, tied to this anniversary on D-Day that we'll be releasing about Canadian heroism in late May. So we're certainly hoping that'll make an impact.
0: I hope it does. I I also wondered, too, if, uh, you know, just physical reminders in our cities. Whenever I travel in different parts of the world and you see there's a monument here or there's uh, something else that people of uh, cities or countries, provinces, what have you, have, have done to remember something from the past, we don't have as much of that in this country and... I don't know if maybe that's uh, a contributing factor to
4: some of this. Yeah, we see, we have the cenotaphs, which are more evident in small towns. And small towns where people have links with their past more are, are great places for that. And having just said, we've got more to do in education. Some individual teachers do fantastic work in this, and some school boards as well. For example, they will assign students to go to the local cenotaph, take a name from the list of those who died there, and go back through phone books and see what they can do to recreate the life of that person. I think it's hard to understand, you know, that. 75 years ago, you know, you need an understanding that these people, these young men mostly who went overseas and fought and often died, that they were people, you know, really just like us. You can see their photographs. You can walk past the house just down the street from you where they lived. You know, perhaps they went to the school you went to or a church or something else. And that makes the link more personal, more human, and therefore more real.
0: We need to really prior, prioritize those links, too, just because it's the 75th anniversary this year, as you said, and uh, our World War II veterans aren't getting any younger, and there's going to come a time when, uh, unfortunately, we, uh, we can't hear their stories firsthand.
4: No, and, you know, we, we do arrange about 2,000 visits a year of our, by our veterans into schools where they talk to kids about their experiences, and it's always a wonderful thing, and it reaches a lot, but, you know, again, we need more. But you just raised a, a huge point, which is that this anniversary in particular coming up, I mean, how much longer will we have the three or 400 veterans who are alive of D-Day today? So this is, you know, occasions like this are the chance to say, we remember you, we appreciate you, we respect you, and we thank you.
0: The focus uh, for this, obviously, is the Second World War and D-Day. But I would uh, hazard a guess that Canadians know a whole lot more about uh, the Second World War than they may do about, you know, anything we've, our our recent conflicts in Afghanistan or anything like that. And so I want, because a lot of veterans, and I don't blame them if they don't want to share their story. It's, it's, you know, their own experience. Um, We don't hear from them as much. We don't. Talk about the Afghanistan conflict the same way we do some of our, like World War Two, for example. And I wonder if this type of a a problem, not knowing much uh, enough of our, our history, is going to become a growing problem down the road.
4: Well, you know, I think you raise a good point because I think that, um, you know, Canada. I mean, we have a tradition of you know, as, as a country, of being kind of modest about achievements and otherwise, which is very good. But we've also had a tradition where, our, for example, our soldiers did not talk about what they went through, and that's uh, you know, and that's really an essential thing, both for met personal mental health in terms of PTSD and addressing it, but also in making other people aware, like what goes on. You know, you, again, you know. If you don't know what it's like, if you can't visualize it, it's that much harder to sense the impact. But if you do hear about it and you get a chance to ask questions, first you say thank you to these people who served for us, but also then you say, now I really understand like why we don't want to be at war, what the stakes are within this individually and on a bigger scale too.
0: Anthony, I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much.
4: Thank you so much.
0: It's Anthony Wilton-Smith from Historica Canada. We need to pause while we're on break. If you don't know some of those questions go do some homework we'll come back we'll do some commercials and we'll have more of london live this is devin peacock in for mike stubbs on 980 cfpl you are listening to london live this is devin peacock in with you today and mike will be back next week are you familiar with bill c69 uh, this entire segment is not going to be about that, but it is going to figure prominently. uh prominently. Bill uh, C-69 was introduced by the federal government a couple months ago. It's currently under review by the Senate. If it uh, ultimately goes through, it would replace the current environmental assessment process for projects with a new and somewhat different process. It is connected in a way to uh, some of these uh, protests you may have uh, seen in the news this week. Uh, This week, there have been hundreds of semi-trailers, pickup trucks, cars, and buses that uh, rolled into Ottawa yesterday. They are uh, protesting the federal government's policies on the oil industry. The protesters want the Liberal government to scrap the carbon tax and two bills that overhaul environmental assessments of energy projects and ban oil tankers from the northern coast of British Columbia. One of the bills they have issues with is Bill C-69. The carbon tax isn't really going to figure into our conversation for today. The uh, the protesters are part of the United We Roll caravan. That caravan and the speeches associated with it, with it have become more uh, about than just oil and infrastructure and the environment. Um, and there's certainly uh, worth time worth spent on what has been happening with some of these caravans. But for the purposes of this segment, uh, the, the focus will be on business, government, Regulation and Bill C-69. The London Chamber of Commerce sent out a release this morning about Canada's growing divisions over infrastructure projects. The London Chamber is one of a number of chambers speaking out today demanding changes to Canada's regulatory system. To uh, talk about this, we are joined by Jerry McCartney from the London Chamber of Commerce. Thanks for your time today.
5: Always a pleasure. Thanks.
0: The uh, Chamber sent out a uh, release uh, this morning. Um, um, a little concerned about some of the divisions we're starting to see in the country with regards to uh, infrastructure projects. Uh, what's some of the concern the Chamber has?
5: Political gridlock, I guess, in short is the uh, is the best answer. We've got uh, situations across the country where we, we have an opportunity for some real nation-building projects, uh, not least of which is getting a lot of our natural resources to Tidewater, and yet they're all choked up with political wrangling and red tape uh, and so many regulations that, that other countries must surely be laughing at us as a result. The, the problem is that we're not laughing. <clears throat> we're seeing a, a, a rapid exodus of capital flowing out of Canada because they have no faith, uh, they being the, the capital folks have no faith in our systems. They're they're looking at the regulations. They're looking at the political gridlock and saying, why would we invest here? And unfortunately, other countries and other jurisdictions uh, are getting the advantage of that capital.
0: This is something that's not just uh, the London Chamber of Commerce. There's a number of uh, chambers of commerce across the country, boards of trades also speaking out today. So this is uh, something that's uh, a concern coast to coast.
5: Yeah, it's of such importance. Uh, you don't see this very often, but but it is a coast-to-coast-to-coast initiative of the National Chamber of Commerce. Every chamber is speaking out on this because every chamber has a stake in every community where there is a chamber. Uh, businesses are hurting as a result. We're not we're not maximizing our opportunity. Uh, we have, as we know, I think some of the cleanest and most ethically produced uh, energy products in the world that could be displacing coal and other uh, bad sources of energy around the world, and particularly in economies like China and India. If we could get our products to Tidewater, we could help resolve some of these issues and uh, take the profits uh, at the same time. But we're not doing that. We're. We're locked up in this political gridlock, province to province, uh, fed to province, and and so on. Uh, It's just unnecessary. It's a waste of time and energy and certainly a squandering of an opportunity that sits right at our front door if we just took advantage of it. Uh,
0: People in London may say, listen, hey, I'm in London. I'm in Ontario. Uh, We're not Alberta. We uh, don't uh, depend on us all as much. Why does this impact me so much?
5: Well, you're going to be paying extremely high prices uh, for oil and gas products down the road. Uh, likely uh, natural gas prices will fall into that same category uh, if we're not able to to compete in a global market. We're going to be in a locked-in marketplace. Our prices will be higher and higher because we're not able to compete globally. Uh, and the way to do that is to get these things unlocked. Uh, so that we can get those those natural resources. I mean, natural resources is what we built our economy on, and now that we we know that, there's an opportunity to extend that beyond our own borders. We're just not doing it.
0: I think sometimes we forget you know, in terms of the amount of oil we have in this country. We are uh, maybe aside from Brazil, I think uh, the large the country with the most oil.
5: Most reserves, Yeah, most reserves, true. yes, yes, yes. And if we took advantage of that, uh, w- we could capitalize on that in ways we've never seen before. Uh, you talk about nation-building exercises. This is this is one or two or three that we have before us. We're just not getting it done. And we're not getting it done for, for any geophysical reasons or barriers like that. We're, we're not getting it done simply because of politics.
0: Uh, Bill C-69, since it was introduced by the federal <clears throat> government, uh, has... Uh, uh, not being popular, I'll put it that way, uh, what, um, what concerns do you have with Bill C-69?
5: Well, A, it's very confusing. There, there's a lot of clarity that's required. There, there's no predictability or transparency to that law. Uh, we, we need to have that. We, uh, business, needs to have that kind of clarity and transparency if we're going to proceed and we're going to pour capital into these things. We just don't see it. Uh, and until and unless those things get cleaned up, uh, Bill C-69 C- is in a lot of trouble.
0: Do you think some of the concern that we are seeing uh, from business groups is being heard or resonating with the government or or where are we with that?
5: Well, I think we're seeing small pockets of noise and resistance around the country. The problem with small pockets is that they, they don't turn the volume up to the extent that the government pays attention. I think this kind of initiative, where it's across the country, we're talking a national chamber body that that has some 200,000 businesses as members, that's a pretty loud voice. And and you don't often get uh, a national initiative. The last one I can recall was on on the government's tax reforms, where we dug our heels in as an organization right across the country and, and said, not this and not now. Uh, And it worked. Uh, We didn't get everything we wanted, but we got significant changes to those tax reforms. I think this can work, too.
0: In terms of, um, you know, government, you know, government can at times move uh, quite slowly. Um, For some of the, you know, when we look at oil prices, as an example, that's something we would like to see, you know, change uh, relatively quickly. The speed of government, is that a concern at all, just in terms of it's like kind of turning around the Titanic in a way?
5: Yeah, there's an old expression that the government moves at glacial speed. The problem is the rest of the world's moving at lightning speed, and we're still using the same old methodologies. And unfortunately, when you start layering regulation on top of regulation on top of regulation, we are the most regulated country in the world when it comes to getting our products to market, it, particularly in the energy sector. That doesn't work anymore.
0: Do you uh, do you think some of these issues and problems we're seeing now could have been avoided, or 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 was this almost a fait accompli?
5: Well, I think they could have been avoided if, if there was strong leadership and, and, and we put our foot down and said not here and not now. But unfortunately, you get a lot of push and shove and yielding and talking and everything else, and, and it just gets all tied up and bottlenecked, and then you get no action whatsoever. Uh, somebody has to lead our way out of this, and it, and it needs to be now. So we're, we're hoping that politicians uh, of all stripes uh, and at all levels of government listen to this concern and act on it. We need to act now.
0: What, um, what benefit possibly could we have from this being an election year? I mean, one good thing about elections is uh, gov- politicians are in a position, at least federally anyway, uh, to uh, gain our support. And uh, being an election year could lead to maybe some changes for Bill C-69 or any other issues that we're, we're having here.
5: I hope you're right, Devin. The, the unfortunate part is we, we are all too accustomed to hearing promises. For instance, the fall economic update promised a lot of things, too, in regard to regulatory changes, but we haven't seen any of them yet. Well, that's fall. This is now almost spring. The election is coming up in the fall. Uh, I'm, I'm not optimistic. I think we need considerable changes uh, to make that happen, and if it takes an election to do that, so be it, but uh, I, I, I'm not entirely convinced that'll happen.
0: Jerry, I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much.
5: Always a pleasure. Thanks, Devin.
0: That's Jerry McCartney from the London Chamber of Commerce. Election years uh, are interesting years for uh, a lot of reasons, but one reason uh, they are especially interesting is uh, what politicians will say and do uh, for your vote. So if you're ever going to uh, make your case to the government, this is the year. Federally, anyway, as we look at a federal election. Uh, we need to pause. When we come back, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. You're listening to London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. A uh, study came out last week that I uh, thought was pretty interesting. It caught my attention. Especially given where we are here in London with, you know, a blend of a rural and urban and different listening areas. So I think this is something everyone should be uh, paying attention to. Uh, there was a study that came out, suggests that people living in rural communities in Ontario could be at a higher risk of having a stroke than their counterparts at urban centers. The report suggests that residents of communities with a population under 10,000 people were more likely to have a stroke than city dwellers also found that those strokes were more likely to be fatal. The study looked at data gathered between 2008 and 2012 from 6 million Ontario residents. Lead author Dr. Moira Kapral says the research found that rural residents were less likely to be screened for a variety of risk factors. It also found that urban residents were at least 10% more likely to be screened for conditions such as diabetes or high cholesterol. To talk about this, we're joined by Dr. Kapral. Thanks for your time today.
6: Oh, happy to be here.
0: Well, I I thought it was an interesting study. What made you want to look into this?
6: Well, we know that stroke is a a major problem. It's a leading cause of death and and disability. But it's also something that's potentially preventable with good uh, attention to risk factors and, and management of those. So we wanted to see if people were being treated similarly across the province and if there were differences in the risk of stroke in rural compared to urban communities.
0: It's uh, quite the difference for some of those rural communities uh, compared to some of the urban. Were you surpri- surprised by the results?
6: Yeah, so we found that the if you lived in a uh, rural community, which we defined as less than 10,000 people, the risk of stroke was increased and the risk of death was increased. So um, we, we, were, we were surprised that we saw that extent of a difference.
0: Is this uh, an issue with regards to access to health care, or, or why are people less likely to, to get screened or, or a
4: checkup for some of this stuff?
6: So we think that it's um, many factors are at play. Part of it is almost certainly access to health care. We know that rural communities don't have as many health care providers, and so it's more difficult for people to have access to care. Um, But part of it is related to um, the way communities are organized and some of the social determinants of of health. So access to healthy food choices often isn't available in some rural communities. And so even people with the best of intentions can't eat healthy food if it's not available or if it's prohibitively expensive.
0: It's interesting that uh, that would be a factor, but I could, I could see, you know, I guess what what you, people you know like to be local. You want to support local, and uh, local means something different in, in urban settings compared to rural settings.
6: Yeah, that's true. I mean, one of one of the key things in Ontario, which is such a huge province, is that all rural co- communities are not the same, and there is a big difference in the the problems that people face and the potential solutions, depending on whether someone is in a rural area that's still close to an urban centre compared to a rural area, which is very remote.
0: What could this mean uh, for Canadians? I mean, this uh, For a lot of people in rural Ontario, this could mean there's a lot of people who really should be uh, getting checked out.
6: Yeah, so I think it means a, a few things. I think um, uh, individuals should do... Th- their best to have a, a healthy lifestyle, so don't smoke, exercise as much as you can, eat a healthy diet to the best of your ability, but people can't do that on their own. Um, I think we also need to look at ways of improving access to health care in rural areas, and so uh, methods to recruit and retain healthcare providers, maybe interventions like telemedicine where people can have their diagnosis and screening done through a remote video conference. But even that's not enough. I think we also have to have a more global society look at the determinants of health in rural communities and and look at ways to increase healthy food options, increase employment and opportunities and all of those other things that, that contribute to health. So I think policymakers as well as healthcare providers as well as individuals all have a role to play.
0: Yeah, we, we often talk uh, about you know healthcare, and maybe we need to have uh, you know a general discussion about what we want our healthcare to do in the 21st century. But even breaking it down, urban compared to rural, is something that we don't hear about. But uh, based on this, uh, st- something we probably should be talking about.
6: Yeah, I think so. I, mean, I think r- rural communities really do face some unique challenges when it comes to health and healthcare.
0: The uh, th- there's also a breakdown in terms of stroke, uh, diabetes, cholesterol. Are there some uh, things that people will get checked out, regardless, I guess, for rural, r- urban versus rural, uh, as opposed to others, like people maybe uh, getting not as checked out for something like cholesterol, maybe even in some rural communities, if they uh, are able to get screened, it may be more likely for stroke, even though the numbers are slightly different. But there's, there's different gaps in terms of urban... Uh, to rural for these uh, different uh, health uh, conditions.
6: Yeah, that's right. So what we found is first we looked at people who had never had a stroke to see what sort of care they were getting. And that was the group where we found that in rural areas, people were less likely to be tested for risk factors like diabetes and high cholesterol. And if they had diabetes, they were less likely to be treated to target in rural areas. So we did see a, a gap in care. However, we then looked at people who had already had a stroke to see what their care was like in rural areas, and in that group, we actually found that the frequency of risk factors, the testing for these, and the treatment was all very similar in rural and urban areas. So that's sort of a a good news story, and um, it suggests that once you've had a stroke and you get looped into the system, that, that it is possible to provide good secondary prevention care. And we think that might be partly due to the fact that Ontario has a really well-organized system of regional stroke care delivery. It's called the Ontario Stroke System, and it was set up and designed to help provide equitable stroke care across the entire province.
0: You read my mind because that was going to be my next question in terms of that gap just disappearing. So I guess the bottom line is uh, make sure you get screened, and if the unfortunate happens, Uh, we do have uh, a good follow-up for people who do need that care. Absolutely. I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's Dr. Moira Capral, the lead author of a study that found people living in rural communities in Ontario could be at a higher risk of having a stroke than their counterparts in urban centers. Whether you live in the city or the country, make sure you get screened for this stuff. Uh, We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. This is London Live and Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. I've recently gotten uh, more serious about uh, working out, exercising, and so I was intrigued when I saw some new research that looked at the benefits of push-ups. Now, push-ups are quite common. They're not exactly new. We all know how to do them, even if we may not like doing them. But some research has found that some simple modifications to push-ups can be used to make them far more effective in targeting different muscle groups. It's not a huge surprise, but there are added benefits to all those push-ups you've been doing, and you may not be aware of it. Researchers studied various push-up positions, hands above the head or lower than the head, hands rotated towards the body or away from the body, and on flat palms or on knuckles. They found that certain combinations of those moves can be stacked on each other and result in greater muscle activation. Clark Dickerson is a kinesiology professor at the University of Waterloo. He and his team uh, did this research. He joins us now to talk about it. Thanks for your time today. Oh, thank you. Well, what made you want to uh, look into this uh, to come to some of these conclusions?
7: Sure. So, I my student Andrew um, was uh, looking to become a physiotherapist after after his um, training at, at Waterloo, and is uh, was involved in martial arts and heavily interested in um, exercises. Um, that could help improve performance in that and also um, target different muscle groups.
0: So was it that the the push-up was something you wanted to focus on going in or as you're looking at this, it just kind of became that's maybe the natural area to look for some of this?
7: Sure. So um, we are a shoulder-focused research group and it's one of the most common exercises for target, targeting shoulder and chest region muscles. So, it, and there has been a, some research on at adapting it for different goals, training and. Rehabilitation goals. So our our purpose in selecting it was that we knew that it was highly adaptable. It was accessible to many people. Um, most most people know what a push-up is or how to do a push-up. And um, the, the flexibility to adapt it to achieve different goals is why we selected it.
0: People may uh, know them. I don't know if they like push-ups. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, but I guess, are we still... Can we say then we're learning more about push-ups and what you know possible benefits they could bring? That's
7: right. Um, In in terms of also, there they are. There's many different ways to do a push-up across um, sort of physical ability level and um, strength level and um, sort of sport-specific ideas um, work. Or occupational readiness, for instance, and um, because of that flexibility, um, it really allows a lot of different, um, a, lot, a lot of different benefits from doing this exercise in slightly different ways. But what wasn't known so much is, is specifically. How these uh, variations will modify the benefits of doing the exercise.
0: Well, it's interesting because there are you know, so, certainly many different variations of doing a push-up, and you know, one example I was I was looking at was you know, if you do them uh, on your knuckles. you, know, you Typically, what they you just like, oh, that's someone who's trying to prove how tough they are. But no, right. there's a, there's an actual benefit that can help your triceps if you do it in that in that manner.
7: That's right. So it. it sort of forces your arm into a different rotation, and then that um, switches the demand to a different muscle group. Um, there, It also has some effects at the wrist um, in which muscles are sort of more or less stressed in that position, um, which depending on... Wh- one of the main reasons was to look at if someone did have compromised um was compromised by an injury or limitation if there were still exercises that are still push-up variations that would be effective um in that sense offloading certain muscle groups would be helpful it's particularly true for rehabilitation as well when um someone's had a specific injury and they want to avoid um overloading particular muscles
0: i just think it's you know it's Maybe an anecdotal that we, we seem to know more about our bodies and the way we can do more in the gym to rehabilitate ourselves or just uh, get general strength uh, uh, in general. But uh, it's it's somewhat anecdotal, but I feel like we today we know more and we're just uh, better adept at doing some of this kind of stuff than maybe 20, 30 years ago.
7: Right. So I, th- I think there is a lot of uh, sort of, gym wisdom, I guess I would call it, where um, a lot of these exercises are known um, to you get a feeling in an area from doing them. But um, what we didn't necessarily have is um, the data to support why these exercises were working or or, or what they were modifying specifically, Um, and now we have that complement from studies like this.
0: The fact that a lot of these different types of push-ups are already known, do you think that makes it easier for people to adapt them and say, okay, well, if I, you know, I've already done this, I've already done that, I know how to do that, now I can better, you know, uh, you know, build strength in my shoulder if I just had surgery mm-hmm. or whatever the case might It's just, it's just easier to adapt than tr- trying something completely new that people aren't familiar with.
7: That's right, So, uh, and that's one of the attractive things about the push-up is that we know what it is fundamentally, um, and so then applying variations is pretty straightforward compared to a completely new kind of task.
0: It's uh, quite interesting. I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. That's Clark Dickerson from the University of Waterloo. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. My thanks to Oris Katolik, to John Perry, to Deb Harvey, Anthony Wilson-Smith, Jerry McCartney, Dr. Moira Kapral, and Clark Dickerson for coming on today's show. Thanks to Matt McCanis for his work on the program. Today's audio gem comes from a news broadcast in the U.S. A reporter used some unusual phrasing for a sentence and immediately regretted it. Have a great day. I'll be back with you in 22
3: hours. A little bit of pleasure every single time you eat. So you heard it. Tara Coleman, clinical nutritionist
6: pleasure yourself with that food (laughs) that came out wrong.